um, have the pleasure and honor of uh, doing this every month. Um, this month, Steve and I talked with a range of colleagues from around the world on about motivational interviewing and a restorative approach. Um, we were fortunate to have Andy Williams with us uh, from Wales, who is an expert in this area. And we had a very stimulating and satisfying conversation. So we hope you enjoy it. And we will be back again next month. So take good care and please share with your family, friends, and colleagues. And now I'll give you the next episode. I think we're ready to go. Are you, you happy, Ange? Yep. So we're just five passes. Perfect. Let's kick it off. Yeah. Good. Well, greetings to everybody from Cardiff, Wales, in my case, and Thank you so much for joining us for what I think is going to be quite an interesting session in which we're going to learn about both motivational interviewing for those less familiar with it, as well as restorative practice for those less familiar with it. And then we're going to look at the, the compatibility of the two. So that that's the aim of the webinar. And, um, Ange and Joel, if you could introduce yourselves in turn, and then I'll say a word about Andy. Thank you. Hi, my name's Ange, um, Angela Watkins. I provide um, support to the webinar and the podcast. Very happy to be here today and joining for this really interesting conversation. Uh, Morena, good morning, everybody. Joel Porter from Otatahi Christchurch. Um, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Um, this is one that I get to, uh, I hopefully get to sit in the back seat and learn a good bit because the restorative approach is something that I'm familiar with, but I can't say I know a whole lot about. And I know we've got some people in the audience that are going to join us. Um, so let's go, Steve. Yeah, lovely. And I invite you folks to um, locate the recording afterwards and share it with whomever you like, because I can promise you this is going to be a fun journey. Now, look, let me hand over uh, in a moment to Andy Williams. And he is somebody who uh, I think Andy's going to introduce himself. I can only, I'll only say one thing about Andy, which is that he has this uncanny way of, he's a school teacher. And he has this wonderful way of integrating both hard-end practical experience over a long period of time with the world of new ideas and how you help people grow and change. And he's continuously searching for these new ideas. One of them is a restorative approach. And Andy's been oiling his understanding of this over, over a couple of decades. So Andy, can I say hello and thank you so much for joining us. And we're over to you now to, I don't know, Andy, what you think, introduce yourself and then maybe um, give us a sense of what you feel the essence of a restorative approach is. And we'll take it from there, bearing in mind, um, will you, that there's somebody who said they're only here for the first half an hour. I believe it was Steve Berg-Smith. So if we could bring Steve Berg-Smith in at about 20 past, Ange, okay, can line that up. But Andy, who are you and 
what is what is a restorative approach? And we'll just take it from there. Well, Noswaitha uh, from Cardiff, from uh, South Wales, and uh, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, so I'm Andy, and I've been in teaching for nearly 30 years. I've taught half of that period uh, in inner city uh, schools around the UK, and the other half in a um, rural, large uh, secondary school uh, where I was deputy head. Um, and um, now I, I work as a consultant uh, working across local authorities, uh, mainly in Wales, uh, exploring how restorative approaches can be implemented um, within large organisations. Uh, and that, I guess, leads me on to this question about, well, so what is a restorative approach in a school context? Because we will have all have heard of restorative justice, I'm sure, um, and um, whilst we use the principles of restorative justice, uh, there's a very different language and philosophy when you apply it to a, a school um, context. So um, essentially, in restorative justice, there are five questions that, uh, that you ask when a um, crime has been committed and uh, you bring victim and offender together. And what restorative approaches in schools does is it takes those five questions and it develops them into principles that guide uh, behavior development um, for all pupils. So let me just let me just uh, explain that in a little bit more detail. The first question uh, is what happened. So essentially, um, that question is asked because you're genuinely interested in that young person's perspective. Now that automatically is a paradigm shift in thinking because schools can mirror the criminal justice system in that they ask what happened, who's to blame, and what's the punishment. So it's a, it's a, it's a mirror of the criminal justice system. Um, so essentially that first question has shifted the, the, the paradigm, the thinking to, you're a valuable member of this community, so I'm interested genuinely in what happened. The next question involves a young person reflecting on what they were thinking and how they were feeling um, before and after that conflict. Um, the third question is around impact. Now, in a traditional mindset, you ask what happened, who's to blame, what's the punishment? Well, in this restorative mindset, the third question is not about punishment. This is now about impact. So an important question is, so who's been affected? Um, and that, again, allows a young person to reflect on the number of people that have been affected by the action. The fourth question is, so what do you need? in order to repair the harm, and that's asked of the person who's been on the receiving end um, of the inappropriate behavior, as well as the person who's perpetrated it. And then finally, the, the fifth principle or fifth question is, 
So how do we together ensure that this doesn't happen again? Um, and so in a school context, the, the highlight is on relationship. Um, and that for me is where uh, one of the similarities with MI is it puts a real emphasis on relationship being the key determiner of change. And I think in a restorative culture, if that's how you're going to approach behavior change, and both MI and RA restorative approaches seek a similar end point in that they want sustained behavior change, well, if that's the way that you're about to approach it, um, then it very much depends on the relationships that you develop, but also on the questions that you ask and the reflection opportunities that somebody has. So they come up with the reasons for wanting to change the behavior. Yeah. Okay. That's very interesting. And there's, 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 two, there's two questions that immediately come to mind here, Andy. One of them is to ask you, what does this look and feel like in practice? Okay. An example, a story. But the other, which is in a way quite profound, which is you're describing almost like a methodology when I happen to know because you mentored me for years when I wrote a book, you know, on MI in schools, that this is not just about how you deal with problems. This can be a school-wide approach to helping young people thrive. So my two points are one is an example. The other is, yeah. hang on, this is a broader thing for you. This is not Ooh. a method or a technique, you know. No. And that's a good question. Let, let me start with the second one, if I can, about culture. Um, because I would imagine, similarly with MI, MI is most effective in an organization, in a culture, which allows relationships to be trusting and authentic and genuine and so on. So, you, you know, the frontline conversation works best if it's within a fertile culture. And exactly the same is true of restorative approaches. So if you take those five principles I've just talked about, um, first of all, you would ask within the culture, how important is it that people have a voice, that they're able to tell their story? that they are able to share their perspective within the learning in the school environment and within classrooms? How often are they encouraged to share not just what they think, but also how they feel about certain learning uh, classroom topics, uh, science, music, drama, art, so that it becomes normative practice within the culture. You are it becomes second nature that you talk about the cognitive and the affective in learning. Thirdly, you talk with ease about the impact of learning on them, and you draw the learning out of their experiences. Um, and fourth, it's about meeting needs and finding the unmet needs in young people so that the learning is tailored and personalized. Um, so if you can develop a culture based on those five principles, then what happens is you have a frame for the building, maintaining, and repairing of relationships. 
Now that, over a period of time, will change culture because your systems will align with those principles, your systems of teaching and learning, behavior uh, rewards, all the rest of it. And then your structures will start to change, the way that you deploy staff and resources. Um, so that leads to a culture change, which allows for when a young person has a conversation about something which has happened, which is severe and which has caused harm, then they'll be able to talk freely about how they felt, um, about what happened, about what they need. But the important point there is it has to be cultural. Otherwise, if it's just, if restorative approaches is used just for behavior management, well, then young people will parody the answers to those questions. And it doesn't take root in the organization. It's almost um, stands apart from the way the things are done in the school. And I would imagine the same is true of MI in organizations that allow relationships to be trusting and authentic. So I'll give you an example very quickly um, of a young lad who um, uh, was looked after. He was 13 years of age, uh, took a cup from the canteen and was throwing it around the car park uh, with his mate on a Friday afternoon. And his mate didn't catch the mug and the mug went through the back window of one of the member of staff's cars. They smashed the back window. Uh, you can imagine uh, the emotion that was going on that Friday afternoon. Now, uh, one way of dealing with that is pretty simple cause and effect. The, the person whose car it was wanted me to exclude the young person and um, uh, go down a very punitive route. Um, and it would have meant time out of school and so on and so forth, you can imagine. Um, but I asked the person, the, 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 the member of staff, if they would just allow me to take a very different approach. So essentially, um, I said, we still need this to have the same outcome. We need this to not happen again. So we're both on the same page here. But how we get to that point, um, we can use very different methods. Um, pressing a button on exclusion is the easier, and I can do that this afternoon. It's not going to be good for the child. It's not going to be good for you, and so on. So we had a restorative conference. And in a restorative conference, <clears throat> first of all, you talk to the individuals, the young lad and to the member of staff, and you prepare well for this conference so that as a facilitator, I wasn't going to be surprised by anything they said. And you ask those five questions. So what happened? Not, not because punishment's coming down the line here, but I'm genuinely interested what happened. And then you really get a, a, an understanding of what went on in that, it, it, on that Friday afternoon and how that young lad felt when the, when the uh, mug went through the window, um, how he'd felt since, how he was frightened to come to school, how... Uh, home hadn't been particularly pleasant, how, and so on. Now, in the meeting itself, I asked those questions, and the member of staff was able to face the young lad and say exactly how that incident had affected him and his family and that car, which was um, the most one of the most important things in his lives. 
And he really took care of and pride in that car. And then the young lad had an opportunity to talk about um, the impact on him and um, how he felt this situation should be resolved. And he came up with a letter that he'd written to this member of staff's wife who couldn't go to hospital because the car was out of action. And he decided with some support that he should pay the excess of the insurance. 75 pounds it was. And he paid every penny. Now, at one point towards the end of the conference, the member of staff said, oh, because he had tears in his eyes, this member of staff, having heard this lad's authentic, genuine a recollection of what happened, an exploration of the impact. And he said, oh, don't worry, we'll leave it there. Let's draw a line. But that wouldn't have held him to account. It wouldn't. Oh. You, st- you still have to have accountability. So in this culture, it is still high accountability but and high boundaries, but there's also high care and support. So uh, the young lad was supported in getting a job in a local chip shop, and he paid every single penny of that £75. Now, most importantly, going back to relationships, those two people are still, 10 years on, very good friends. Now, they wouldn't have been had I have gone, probably wouldn't have been, had I have gone down a punitive route. The cost of going down a punitive route, if that lad, like so many statistics in, uh, tell us, had had become disengaged, disconnected with school, felt that he wasn't part of the community, and uh, ended up in a young offenders organization, would have been hundreds of thousands of pounds to the local to, to, to the economy. As it happened, the way that we dealt with it, and the sustained behavior change of that young lad who went on to um, get his qualifications at 16 um, is immeasurable. Now, that's just one example. And yes, it does take time. It does take time. But then behavior is learned. So if behavior is learned, well, then shouldn't we be putting in as much time into behavior as we do to our academic subjects? so that young people know that school is a place where you learn to get it right. And they know that there's a, a community that looks out for you and that catches you and that allows you to fall, but doesn't allow you to fall too far. And that for me is the uh, difference in a restorative culture as opposed to a punitive culture. <coughs> now, yes, go ahead. it does depend. And and what I felt is a lonely journey because in in many schools, the bottom line of academic achievement is uh, credentials, uh, how many GCSE qualifications you get. Now, if that is your bottom line, and if that's where your emphasis is placed, well, then rewards and punishments work well in that kind of culture. Now, Um, I was swimming against the tide because um, education, I believe, has swung too far towards that marketization of learning, where it's a means to an end. And simple cause and effect, rewards and punishment, lends itself to getting kids to be compliant in a classroom where the learning is predetermined 
And it's simply a case of knowledge eating. If you shift the paradigm and you look at what I think is real learning, which is dialogic and co-construction of knowledge, well, actually, restorative approaches is perfect for that type of learning, which is facilitative and done with. <coughs> and so there's this paradigm shift, I think, in the way that we see learning in school. And that includes behavior. Yeah. Behavior yeah. is not separate. So, so failing a maths test or making a behavioral mistake are both opportunities for learning. Sure. Yeah. Now, look, it's, it's, we've got five minutes, and I wonder whether Steve Berg-Smith would like to come in for just five minutes. Um, can he send us a message? And I see Rich Rutschman from Chicago is with us, and he is uh, just the most wonderfully. Steve. The floor is yours for five minutes to chat to Andy and the rest of us. Yeah, give me a second. Give me, give me a second here. I don't have my uh, regular camera plugged in, and I want to have that in the works. Andy, first off, it's good to see you again. The last time I saw you was at a Montreal Canadiens hockey game, um, I don't know, five, six years ago. Yeah. So it's good to see you. Thank you. See. You too. Sorry that I'm not prepared here. Hopefully that's the trick. Oh, that's much better. Yeah. You know, so I I had one question, Andy. I, I didn't catch the fourth question. What is the, the fourth question? The, first, the, the fourth question is around needs. So what is it that you need in order to yeah. move on? Right. And, um, you know, that's quite a difficult question yeah. uh, for, for any, of us, any of us to answer. So, again, it, it's important that the learning in the school um, is very focused on young people being able to express what they need from other people to learn at their yeah. best. Yeah. So um, it, it's just it just mirrors good learning for me. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. What, what I want to add is that um, my, my wife and I were actually the recipients of a restorative process after our home had been burglarized. Whoa, did I just lose you? No, you're fine. Okay. So se seven years ago or so, our, our, our home was... Uh, burglarized. It was uh, incredibly impactful for our family. We lost musical instruments, all of our electronics, computer, my work life. Um, we had a, a safe that was actually carried out of our home. And inside the safe were all of our important documents. And I won't go into any more details. But anyway, one of the um, people that came into our home, 17 years old. And we ended up going through a restorative process with, with this young man. W one of the most uh, healing, emotional, transformational um, processes I, I've, I've ever been through. And 
when when I look back, what what made it happen was the facilitator. I was a bit dubious about going into this process from the beginning. And we had a chance to meet with the facilitator and facilitator got to know us. And as it turned out, this is somebody who actually went through one of my motivational interviewing trainings. (laughs) So immediately uh, there was rapport and connection. And what, what I picked up very quickly is what supported the journey and the process was her skillfulness in using her motivational interviewing savvy and skills to guide these interactions with this young man and with us. And what I will say is that it's been seven years now and we continue on a monthly basis to receive a small check from this man who is now 25 years old. Wow. Very, very grateful. So I get it. I experienced it firsthand. And again, I want to reiterate is that the facilitator is key because our facilitator was a master Mm. at guiding the process. The reflective listening was just impeccable right on. We all felt understood. And in the end, we all came out different. We, we had transformed and really appreciate Andy, the way you were able to clarify uh, very clearly what, what those questions are and the healing potential of, of working in this way. Thank you. Well, thank you. Incredible story, Steve. Thank you so much for that. And, um, Andy, um, can I jump in? Oh, oh, sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Go ahead, Joe. So, one of the things that um, that strikes me is that um, is is, a, is around culture change, right? So, I, I work primarily in a, in a in a sort of a corrections world where the men we're working with are coming out of prison. Um. And they, throughout their lives, have been more on the consequential punitive side of justice. And so their expectation coming in is that it's going to be like prison in that sense, right? What happened? Who's to blame? What's the penalty? End of the story. Um, How, what are some foundations that need to get laid within an organization to bring in an approach that's counterintuitive to the way people think about addressing the issues. Going from a consequence-based methodology to a more restorative one that still holds people to account. So case in point, just the other day, we had um, one of the one of the fellows in the in the in the center had put down his drink can, and another and walked away, and another guy walked over, poured some in a glass, drank it, and walked off. And a staff member observed this, and he did this in front of a bunch of people. And there was a conversation that this is stealing, and 
there were people on the staff that wanted to send him back to prison for drinking some of this guy's Coca-Cola. And the guy who took it from didn't really care. So talking about swimming upstream, <laughs> I'm swimming upstream, you know, sometimes with a, with the boulder tied to my feet. Um, and it's a real challenge because not only is it ingrained into the men coming in what their expectations are, but several of the workers look at this as a violation of a cardinal rule. And once cardinal rules are violated, you push the button and you send them back to prison, which is the most expensive intervention we could possibly use. Yeah, um, thanks, Joel. Um, I think I think um, what was, from my perspective, important was the mindset of staff around, first of all, the purpose of education and learning, um, and that behavior is learnt. Um, and so some young people will take longer than others to learn uh, how to get it right. And very similarly to learning French or German, or in Wales, Welsh, um, some kids pick it up straight away for all kinds of reasons. Others just take longer and longer. And, and some make mistakes, um, and they just need more support and guidance. Um, but so there's this sense of a mindset around what the purpose of learning and education is. And then whether or not this, and that aligns to school vision, and also the set of values that underpins the organization, and whether those values are shared by the people who live and work there. Um, and and, and that, that includes how, you know, how we as a community um, support the development of all of our children with empathy and compassion. And um, those, for me, are, are, were really important aspects of the change process. But there was also something at the beginning which needed to happen, and that was the question of, well, what's the urgency for change? What, why, why are we changing? And what was, you know, when you looked at the hard data and the soft data, my God, there was a need for change. You know, there were young people being excluded, placed in detention, um, um, referring to youth offending. And, and, in, in, and so the, the data, both hard and soft, was flashing to us to change. Um, and the way that we were dealing with some young people was counter to our values. Um, and that and that didn't sit well uh, as a as a school community, um, and 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 ultimately, you know, what's when you ask teachers why why did you go into teaching in the first place? You know, going back to their their core purpose. You know, why did you become a teacher? Because I love learning, and so aligning behaviour with learning, I think, was essential. Mm. Okay, we, we, yeah. we all hear it from time to time, is that the only way that these men are going to learn is by consequences. Mm. Mm. And that, so challenging that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So that's you know, that, yeah. Andy, um, 
I noticed there's something of a paradox here, which is that, and we're highlighting this, that, that a restorative approach, and indeed MI, works well in a fertile culture. You've said that. And there's a paradox because it's precisely in infertile set, settings where we so often feel it's most needed. And I, I'm not suggesting there's an easy resolution to it, but it is a paradox that. And, and uh, I, I'm hoping that we can ask Paula Adams to come on next because she's somebody who's had experience of being part of a, a culture that changes. But before that, I wanted to clarify for us, what is the overlap between MI and a restorative approach? And I'm wondering about values, whether the, the values that drive MI and the values that drive a restorative approach are in good synchrony. Can you speak to that from your experience, um, Andy? Yes. Um, when, when um, well, I mean, I can give you a story around how we started with values, if that's helpful, um, because I do think that that's, those, if you imagine a triangle, the vision and the values of the organization form the bedrock from which everything um, um, is drawn out of. So there's a line of sight between your values and the systems and structures that you set up within the organization and then the frontline conversations that you have in the classroom. So most importantly, in our journey of change, those values had to be shared. And there is a significant difference between values shared and shared values. And I was noticing uh, that quite often the senior leadership team in schools sit around a table <clears throat> or they go away for a weekend <clears throat> and they come up with the values of the school and the vision that's attached to those values. Now, that's not a shared vision. That's a vision <laughs> shared. Same with the values. So the very process of arriving at your values has to be collaborative and it has to imitate and model the very values that you're promoting. So we, with the young people and the governors and the parents and you know, massive, a massive exercise of 2,000 plus people with um, some values cards and in circles, because circle process is really important to a restorative culture, people were sitting in circles with a talking piece and we're talking over 2,000 people, um, not in the same circle. But um, in these circles across a period of a few months, talking about, well, what's important here? You know, what is it that we value? And they came up with five very important values that inform everything we do, um, <clears throat> including the frontline conversations we have with our pupils and with each other. Now, those, you know, I don't need to go into the values necessarily, but does that help? That helps a great deal. Yeah, that helps a great deal. And um, our next panelist is going to talk about transformation in a healthcare setting. Uh, and it'll be useful to, 
you know, in hearing her story, keep an eye on what were the shifts in values, I suppose, that that drove that. But something I do know, I did think, uh, Andy, by way of comfort, is to avoid polarizing, you know, there's the marketization system or consequence-based, as Joel put it, on the one hand, obsessed with targets and outcome that depresses learning and depresses creativity on the one hand and a restorative approach on the other. And perhaps we've got to be careful of creating a, a dubious dichotomy here because my experience in sport is that there are some wonderful teams and clubs where the two are integrated. Mm. And you, you need to look no further than Liverpool Football Club and the way that head coach speaks about relationships being the fundamental building block, well, I mean, they are flying. They're getting all the results and outcomes that, that you might dream of. And I've noticed in sport that you often hear this phrase, get the processes right and don't worry about the outcomes. And I think that came from the inner game of tennis, the fellow who wrote that, who said, you know, see ball, hit ball, don't worry about where it's going or what the score is. And so I, I, I say that by way of comfort to all of us, that if you encourage people to focus on getting the process right, the relationship building process right, mm. the outcomes can improve as a consequence. In mm. fact, you would argue that they're going to improve much more as a consequence. Mm. Mm. I don't know if that, you know, so I just raise that as, as a, a note of optimism and, and hope here. Mm. I think I think you're quite right to to mention it because the danger of, of um, restorative for some people is that it can be woolly and cozy and you know you know it, it is it isn't holding people to account but quite the opposite is true uh, when you get it right you, you are in that box of high accountability high routine for me it would be high rigor but also high care and support um, because you need that in order to feel safe so that you can learn effectively. Um, but, it, but the same is true with teachers. Um, and in Wales, we have a new curriculum. And the great thing about this new curriculum across you know, the whole of Wales is that for the first time in 20, 30 years, it's handing back the vision for the curriculum to the teachers themselves. And yeah. so then, instead of this predetermined set of knowledge, which teachers have had to deliver over the last 30 years, now there's a sense of agency within the teachers themselves uh, to take risks, to be innovative, to be creative in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, so it's freeing them up a little bit. Um, uh, but there's still an, a set of accountability measures which, um, which <laughs> Uh, can help, but can also hinder. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, Andy. Thank you. And in this webinar now, we're going to move on to hear from all Adams, who's going to be telling us about how our culture changed in line with the use of motivational interviewing. She won't probably won't talk about a restorative approach, but what we're looking for are parallels between these different stories from different settings. And then, Angie, I'd like to ask you to bring Dave Rosengren on, whom I know 
has experience of parent effectiveness training. Okay. And I think, Dave, it'll be fun for you and I to have a conversation about parent effectiveness training with a keen eye on how do you change the culture of a home so that you don't rely on reward and punishment and imagine you're helping your kids really thrive. So we, 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 we've moved from criminal justice to education, now to healthcare, and then to the home. And on each occasion, Andy, we'll come back to you for comments. Does that sound? Yeah. Does it sound a bit wild? No, it's great. Okay. Orla, won't you introduce yourself? How lovely to see you. And if we just give you five minutes or so to tell a story. Fab. Thanks, Steve. And thanks for inviting me along again. I know I've talked about our department and the work I do quite a few times and people will have heard this before, but it's always a, a pleasure to share our journey and story. And I obviously coordinated wardrobes with you tonight, Steve, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something, Orla, but I, I decided not to. In the connection. Anyway, I will I will carry on. So um my name is Orla. I am a dietitian in Cardiff in Wales in the UK and I've been uh, qualified since 1998. So came from a training in clinical dietetics that was very much about assess people for their problems and deficits and then you tell them what to do and how to do it and you will fix them and you will have these great impacts on people's lives. And I quickly discovered that with the use of the skills that I was trained in is that this didn't happen. Um, I, f I always felt like people were trying to give reasons not to change. I tried every tactic I could, fear, persuasion, encouragement, nothing had a real impact. And then it started to impact on us as dietitians in our department. Um, we felt ineffective. We felt frustrated. We didn't particularly want to work in the chronic conditions lifestyle side anymore. I was almost veering towards private practice and industry and, and to leave the NHS. Um, and that was heartbreaking because I wanted to work in healthcare and, and support people with change. And so that's what brought us to motivational interviewing. Um, and it wasn't me alone. It was the department felt it. I heard it in all my colleagues, not just in dietetics, but across the therapies. So physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech and language. You could, you could hear it from us all. Um, so when I started to learn MI, started to um, use it in practice and see the impact really quickly with even just the basic spirit of it and some of the very basic skills that I was practicing. And then I started to share this with colleagues and say, wow, the reaction from people when I change what I'm saying and how I say it is quite phenomenal. You know, these, these conversations feel so different. I'm actually quite excited about clinics I don't sit with my head in the desk in between appointments anymore and, and just think, what am I doing this for? So I didn't say to my colleagues, right, we must all do this. I think we should all learn MI. This is what we must all do and start to be evangelical about it. Um, they could just hear that it was different in me. And so I started to share the things that I had learned. My colleagues started coming to trainings and in, in, with Steve and Cardiff. And um, we started to support each other with learning. 
and it really filtered through the department and people were really interested in, in what was it that we were doing that felt so different. Um, and I've noticed even in the last few years is that it filtered through to physio and speech and language therapy and, and OT as well. Um, and so our culture, not even just in the conversations we have with the people who use our service, have changed, but between us as colleagues, the way we approach conversations about change, any struggles we're having, supporting each other and affirmation in the office, um, the conversations we have when we walk out of clinic and sit together in our rooms. I would have said before, it was very judgmental. It was very critical of patients. It was very blame, blame orientated, like why won't people change? Why do they come and see us when they don't want to do things differently? The shift now is that we come back into the office and we say, wow, look at what that person is going through. And they're here talking to me today about it. Our expectations of people have changed. Um, when someone makes one change or they engage in a service, that's seen as a really positive outcome. And so we are, we feel effective. We feel excited about the work we do. The outcomes have improved. Um, I would say the culture and the feeling within our department is a really positive environment to be in. And any new newly qualified dietitian who joins our department I deliver MI training to them. So it's invested. Anyone new walks into our department, it's the first thing they're exposed to. And they hear it in our conversations and we develop their skill. And people want to come to our department because we have this reputation now. And that's really lovely to know. You know, people come and say, we've heard that you use practice motivation interview and I want to learn more about it. Can I sit with you in clinic and hear what you do? Um, and so it's probably taken what 2006 I walked into the first workshop in Cardiff with you Steve yeah. and so we're now all these years down the line but it's growing yeah. and developing and embedded really and and the foundation seems to be better quality relationships between you and your the people you see as well as among the staff so I can I can see the link there with what Andy's been describing as the foundation of it all is, is, is quality relationships. And, you know, coming from the MI world where you avoid labeling people, these are, these are people, not patients, mm. or people, not students, or let alone badly performing students. And if, you, if they can get to feel safe enough, then they'll have the strength and the courage and the curiosity to change. Which, which sounds like has happened to both the people that you serve as well as the colleagues. Very much so. Um, you, it feels like such a different place to work. And yet we work in a, you know, a really underfunded service in a very unpleasant health centre. You know, the environment around us is not yeah. a nice place when you walk into it. And you, you feel the warmth when you walk into the place. And yeah. I think the people accessing our service feel it as soon as they walk into the room and and meet us in an appointment or wow. over the phone or, or over video at the minute. or whatever and we're going to ask dave rosengren this question in a moment you know what does it feel like to walk into a home that has these qualities because i think there's going to be a link there but uh, 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 ola thanks so much hey we're going to keep the show moving hey and andy after a, a comment from you i'm going to ask us ask Ange to bring Dave Rosengren on and then Ken McMaster after that. And then if we've got a chance, the wonderful Rich Rutschman, who will talk about adventure games with children.
and how they are aligned with everything we've been talking about. Rich, sincere apologies if we don't get to you. I've got my eye on the time. So, Joel, is it okay if we be a bit of a bossy boots and, and ask Andy for a couple of comments and then Dave? Would that be okay? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I'm really enjoying listening. Okay, I, it, it's quite a tight schedule, but I feel like it's going to be wor- It's a worthwhile shower. Yeah. It's a warm shower. Um, Andy, a couple of comments, and then if you could bring Dave Rosengren on, and lots of love, hey, Ola. We'll see you soon, eh? Bye. Oh, um, thanks, Ola. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to that story. And, and one thing that was um, coming up for me was in a restorative um, having a, a restorative conversation with somebody it, we, in our heads, we have these five questions. And I guess in MI, you have the, you know, the skills and the processes that are in the back of your head. Um, and, and it's sometimes a real, a real issue that it can, it can become across a quite contrived and done too. And the kids can see through it. Is sometimes they said, yeah, unless it's cultural, this kind of stuff, then the kids say, oh, yeah, I know what you're going to ask me next, sir. You're going to ask me how I felt. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I, I would imagine sometimes that happens in MI where they say, oh, now, now you're going to say, you're now you're going to ask me an open question. Is that, is that a danger? Well, they, they give you answers. People give you answers that they think you, they want you to hear. Yeah. You get that an awful lot. I mean, I yeah. mean, yeah, you get that an awful lot, Andy. You do. So they parody the process, um, and that was an, an issue in restorative schools, where they just used it for for behaviour management. So you you only ask me when I how I'm feeling when there's been a fight, um, and the kids can soon that, uh, see through that because it's not authentic, and um, and they don't have the language. And so, the parallel- and the parallel there with what Orla was saying is that you can't just practice MI in isolation, but, you know, like you might a restorative circle, that you want to listen to your colleagues. Mm. And then, then things converge in mm. an authentic way. Okay. Um, and in, yeah. the world, in the world of sports coaching, authentic, authenticity is a very important concept for coaches who struggle to, to to balance all the demands that they're faced with. But yes. I'm not going to talk about sport just yet. No. But um, take us into the world of the home. I mean, I, I, Dave Rosengren's going to come on now. He's completely unprepared for this. And he knows I'm, I know him well enough to know that he thinks I'm mischievous and wacky by doing this. But I know he'll, he'll be up for the challenge. And then we'll move on to Ken McMaster. Dave. Yes, there, sir. There's some common stuff threads that are being identified about walking in a straight line from your personal values, the way you conduct yourself and build relationships, to the way you address issues and problems that arise. How's that? Yeah. And yet, you know something about something called parent effectiveness training. Yeah, from the inside out. So I had parents who shifted to parent effectiveness training when I was mid-childhood. So I had the culture change kind of happen (laughs) in the middle of it. So I know what that felt like going from the old model to the new model. I just, (laughs) 
It's it's fan. It's been great listening to you, Andy. This is my first time hearing it since you presented to the Mint Forum a few years back, and it's just lovely to to hear and be thinking about this. You impacted my thinking back then, and and it's really got the gears going today as well. So I want to just tell a story because this just happened this morning. So my son, who's 18 and a senior in high school here, will be going off to college in the fall. We don't have a curfew for him. It's just more let us know when you're going to be home and um, keep us informed about what's going on. So we're not worried about you. And that's sort of this evolution of, of having more and more responsibility for your life. So last night, and part of this is that, but you got to get up and go to school in the morning around this stuff. And so he was out later last night. He had a project that had to get done. And then this morning, I realized things were very quiet and I hadn't heard him this morning. So I walked into his room. I said, hey, bud, what time do you have to be at school? And he said, um, I'm tired. I said, okay, and you need to go to school. And he said, but I'm really tired. I, you know, I woke up really early and I can't go. And I said, yeah, okay. And you need to go to school. And I walked out of the room. And that was the amount of conversation around that, because the, agree the agreement that we have is that he makes his own decisions around when he gets home, but he has to go to school. And he knows that that's the agreement between the two of us. I don't have to remind him. I don't have to nag him. So a little while later, I hear him pounding down the stairs and going out to the car and hopping in the car. And the door probably slams a little harder than what it needs to. but. He's on his way to school. And I think it's the, the thing that parent effectiveness training does that's very consistent, I think, with what you do, Andy, is talking about who owns the problem. And within parent effectiveness training, it's really separated on when's, when's it a parent problem and when's it a child problem and making sure you're clear on those and then acting accordingly with relationship being at the center of all that and support and accountability all mattering. And I just think that, you know, that's exactly what I hear happening in the restorative practice process is it's not just about the individual in that setting. It's about everybody else and what are their parts in all of this and how do they own the different elements of whatever the problem is. It's not just about the person who's engaged in the behavior, but it's how do we as a community respond to that. And so I just thought it was a really nice parallel. And I just was thinking big picture too, and this is sort of a side, but how much of a lift this is around culture change. And it has me thinking about the whole implementation science about how do we go with from an evidence-based practice that works in one setting and make it work in another and all of the different elements that have to happen and the circles you were talking about, how that's one piece, but there's all the other elements around the school, getting the administration on board, the, the school board in the U.S., the, you know, the surrounding community, the parents, all the rest of those. I just, it's really fascinating. So those are my thoughts. And I know you got a lot of stuff to get to, so I'll stop there. Can I ask you a question, Dave? Sure. Um, parents' effectiveness training comes from the work of Carl Rogers and his colleagues. What, what's that about? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, Thomas Gordon was the person who sort of developed it, but it grew out of that tradition of client centered, in this case, child centered. Um, how do we, you know, place the child at the center of this? And how do we recognize that they have this innate um, tendency towards growth as long as we sort of remove barriers to that process happening? Now, there is accountability and expectation and all those things matter and how we engage around these things matter. And at the center of all this is really good listening as an expression of empathy and concern and understanding of what's going on with. Fantastic. And so it's no coincidence, therefore, the link between parent effectiveness training and, for example, motivational interviewing, because as, 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 as many of you know, motivational interviewing is founded upon the practice of quality listening for different purposes but but that that's very interesting the the, the place of listening uh, dave i think we'll 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 keep you on hold for the time being thank you so much you're in seattle washington i know that and and it's a long way away and thanks so much for for joining us andy um we're shortly going to move on to the world of criminal justice and we're going to ask Ken McMaster to join us for a few minutes. But I wonder if before we do that, you've got any comments. Um, yes, I was just interested um, in, in, in what was being said around um, rules of engagement within the, the world of parenting um, and how a curriculum in a school can um, support young people in co-constructing the rules of engagement rather than them being the teacher's rules, uh, the organization's rules. Uh, from a very young age, I've worked with young people who, based on what they need from each other to work at their best, they're able to develop the rules of engagement so that the class as a community um, supports each other and is accountable to each other for the rules of engagement. Very similar to what David was, was, was suggesting. And then that isn't just about rulemaking. That's also about, so, you know, who, who makes knowledge? And, and do we always learn from people above us? And then we, you know, let's, let's stop that thinking and then start being more dialogic in our learning, in our curriculum development, um, because then restorative approaches when there's been a, a conflict just augments the learning. Um, and so it's an, it's an opportunity just to, just to come alongside the young person and say, well, you know what, when we were in the classroom and we were talking about this type of um, exploration of action and impact, this is the same. So how do we how do we go about how do we together go about resolving these issues? Um, yeah. So and and um, after the pandemic, schools in Wales are really struggling post pandemic with relationships. So it, it's it's a real issue for for schools in Wales at the moment. I'm not sure about other people's experiences. Um, and uh, I've worked with a group of people to look at how a restorative approach can support schools post-pandemic. And I'll put the link 
um, to the website, which I think uh, many of the people that you have listening in um, will find useful. It's called um, restoreourschools.com. Uh, so, um, yeah, have a look at that as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. And it, 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 what you've just said has echoes the, the idea of co-constructing is a very powerful way of, of I imagine, Dave Rosengren sat down with his son and co-constructed these. Yeah. This agreement, right? And it reminds me of, of, a, of an elite football team that I worked with, the coaches, where we sat down with the players and said, look, we want to change the halftime team talk so that it's led by the players and not by the coaches. And we co-constructed it. I was a little bit clever and we produced a circle time methodology from a restorative practice world. But we did co-construct this with them and they did practice it during the week. And when it came to, to matches, they were able to conduct their own halftime, player-led halftime team talk based on feeling safe and respecting and liking each other as human beings, which I can see has got a number of parallels. Now, look, um, we get, we're crossing the planet to New Zealand where Ken McMaster, Joel, introduce Ken McMaster, please. I'll only, say this, I'll only say this, that underneath my pajamas is this wonderful pendant, which Ken gave me 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I think it's got some kind of Maori culture significance, but I've never taken it off my neck since Ken gave this to me. So thank you for that, Ken. All right. Um, I think, <clears throat> I think <I'll, clears throat> there's a lot to introduce with, with Ken, but what I'll say is, that one of the areas that Ken has been focusing in on years has to do with domestic violence. And he's been directly involved in restorative work with people. So I think Ken might have some experience and some ideas to share. And I'd love to hear you and Andy <clears throat> talk a little bit, Ken, about restorative practice. Yeah, thanks, Joel, and, uh, and and thanks, Steve, for being here. And Andy, look, it, it's it's been uh, lovely to hear your conversation because, of course, restorative justice is about giving back voice to those who are impacted. Right, it's taking it out of that sort of criminal justice uh, process. And it's interesting when I when I've been listening tonight or this morning for me, I've been reflecting on a couple of pieces of work that I've been involved with. One has been obviously in the kind of family violence area because if we think about Family violence is often about rupture in a relationship. It's often about disconnection. It's often about isolation. And so the important thing to give voice to those who are harmed uh, is, is such a critical part of the healing process. So, because I think often what we've done is we, we've sent, sent men off to programs, for example, to around behaviour change, but then we don't actually bring them back into relationship because in, in my experience, most women want the violence to stop, but they want the relationship to continue because they've got skin in the game, you've got children in common, you've got mortgages to pay, all the kind of really life reality things that happen. And, and so sometimes we have shortchanged in some ways. So one of the processes we've been doing a lot of work around um, has been this idea of resolution. So where do we, how do we bring people, particularly at the end of a piece of work, because sometimes there's some work to do before you do this process. So it's not just a one-off process. It's that idea of once there's been intervention and you've got awareness, you've, you know what some of the impact has been, you've been in touch with that. We can then sit down and have a conversation because it's about relational stuff. 
And so it's ability to actually do healing at that point. And then and resolution is not necessarily getting back together, but the ability of people to, um, to move on. So, so it's been interesting to think about that as a kind of idea. And, of course, um, we, we think about partnership as a key you know, motivational interviewing kind of um, stream, but also that idea. So it's relational. And I think in some ways what we're trying to do. I was reflecting, actually, when you're thinking about youth stuff, I've been involved in, RJ has been a part of my practice for a long time. And I remember sitting with a, with a, with a family, and this is actually in the sexual violence area. This is a youth um, sexual offending program. And, uh, and I'm sitting with this, this Indigenous family. There's 14 people in the room. And that's the other thing, too. It's not just about individual. This is about community. This is about actually sitting. There's two young boys on our on our adolescent sexually offending program, and 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 then there's this whole family. Now, when we start to to story tell, which is a restorative process, this is a family where abuse has been rife, and we've got aunties in that room who have been the victims of abuse by their cousins. So this is a family where there's a there's a kind of a behaviour that's entrenched. And, and and I remember, you know, facilitating this conversation, and it's a powerful conversation when people can have their voice. And these aunties, and if you know anything about our Indigenous women, <laughs> our aunties are staunch, and they see that stops at this generation. So these young boys are in a process where they know they are uffy, they are supported to do the hard work um, because there's a real intent actually break this this family kind of pattern of behavior so for me these things are incredible processes and um and i think that's the emotion that comes out of that moment that i think is also it's not just about a head thing it's the emotion it's, it's the kind of being fully present i think in that uh, moment which which i think is interesting because in some ways it is about and I think it goes back to your idea earlier, Steve, about a, a, a values. It's an ethical journey we're asking people to do, to take to, to be accountable for what you've done, and and then really to talk about what it means moving forward. How will things be different? And and, and again, from a restorative justice perspective, what do I need to do to repair the harm that's been done? Um, because there has been harm. It's super clear, Ken. Andy, we've got we've got a few minutes more with Ken, and then we're going to move on to Rich Rutschman. Um, nothing much. I mean, it's it's good to hear that, and um, I, you know, the word community resonates with me. Um, that um, what we what what I was finding and the teachers I was working with were finding was that the language in the school changed. And um, I, I heard boys talking about their feelings in corridors and um, their actions around looking out for each other, their, their language around family, around um, um, belonging, and this, this invisible but palpable importance or the acceptance um it, it was just changing the atmosphere of the school and i think and the police interestingly when they looked at antisocial behavior that had dropped 48 percent in the community they came in and they said i don't know what you're doing but it's having a hell of an impact on the community <laughs> and i said you know what? i just think it's this difference between compliance 
or community and compliance gets in the way. And for me, what we're, what we're not about in a school is just bringing up kids who comply yeah. uh, as passive learners in a classroom. We want kids to challenge appropriately and be critical um, in, you know, in the right sense of that word and, you know, and be innovative and creative um, and, and be themselves. Um, and I think in, in a culture which is predicated upon simple cause and effect, rewards and punishments, um, that gets in the way of so much potential. And, um, and, and yeah, so, so the word that Ken mentioned there around community and how this approach builds community um, resonated for me. It's amazing because uh, it, I suddenly remembered you once invited me to the school and asked me whether I'd like to speak to some pupils. And one of them didn't turn up to the, into the room where we were meant to meet. She turned up late and I said, would you mind my asking you why? And she said, well, I found another kid crying on a toilet seat in the toilet. And I said, well, would you mind telling me what you did? And she said, yeah, 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 this kid had been abused with the internet and images and stuff like that. And I asked the kid what uh, she wanted to do about it. And I gave her some options and she chose for me to come after school and meet the kid that had done the harm to her and just to talk it through. And so I said to her, look, are you a, are you a counsellor in the school? She said, no. I said, are you a prefect or are you a a leader in the school. And her, her comment was, no, this is just the way we do things around here, um, which I, I, I found truly moving sense of community. That's how we are. Mm. That's how we look after, accept, and accept each other. Now, look, Andy, um, in a way, uh, tighten your seatbelt here because we're going to hand it over to Rich Rutschman if you could get him on. Rich is in, in Chicago. and. Um, what about the world of adventure games? And how does that link to the development of, of, of excellence and equality culture within sports clubs? Which, you know, I know there's quite a few sports folk listening in. Now, look, uh, uh, when, when I was doing research for the, for, for the book that I subsequently wrote with Rich on, on motivational interviewing schools, he invited me into what, was described, I think, by Rich as the most violent school in the U.S. with the highest rate of whatever. And on Fridays, Rich would gather the most difficult kids on the edge and spend the day with them. And, and all I'll say is that in the space of a couple of hours, I saw and indeed practiced myself the use of MI, the use of adventure games, and the use of a restorative circle because a problem arose. And I saw all three of these being practiced uh, in the same environment. So I wonder if we've got Rich with us and whether we could welcome him. He's an old-time champion of civil rights in the United States. There he is. Hi, Rich. <laughs> You're very welcome. Won't you tell us, Rich, about adventure games and how they how you see the link between adventure games, MI and a restorative approach? Well, I think uh, Andy has put it really well as the importance of creating a culture um, 
and the relationships that are key to that. And so adding adventure education or experiential education to the mix, and we know that MI works best when combined with other approaches, other uh, uh, evidence-based approaches. And the thing about adventure games, experiential education, is that they're really good at creating relationships, at com building community. And so the approach um, is, is pretty simple. You create an experience. Um, after the experience, the experience usually will involve your things related to trust building, things related to problem solving, things related to dealing with challenges, um, and also just experiences where people let their guard down and can be authentic with each other, just have fun together. And, and, and so what we would do in the case um, that, that you, Steve, experienced was we had the kids on the hot list, the kids who are most vulnerable, who the school said they have a foot in the door and out the door from the school. They're the ones that are causing problems in the hall. Um, sometimes we had the kids who's, who's, um were friends of, of somebody that had just been shot and killed by another, another uh, student in the same school. And so now within the school, you had real hatred happening in the hallways. And so we would meet with, with mostly the victims at, at first to do this first before we would, we would then, and the school would do the restorative work. Um, so what we do is we have the experience, then we reflect the feelings and thoughts that came up during the experience. So now they're getting practice what they're going to do in a restorative circle. But they're doing it now as an everyday thing. It's like, oh, we just play this game. It's, it's a cooperative game. Now we're going to reflect on uh, or a challenging initiative, whatever it might be. It might be closing your eyes and being led around the room with, with the, another person just holding onto your finger. That's the simple activity it is. For the next 30 seconds, person number one, close your eyes and, and that's it. And then you reflect and you wouldn't believe the kind of learning that can happen in 30 seconds from doing that experience. And then you, you generalize after everyone shared what it was like, how scary it was. And then it was like, what are some experiences like this where you have to trust another person? that you might you know, be led off the stage because we often would be on the stage doing the experience or maybe it was run into the wall if they're in the gym. And, and then the final question is, you know, what can we learn from the experience? So it mirrors a lot of, of what the restorative circle is and it prepares them for, for the need for the circle kind of reflections that might come if you, if you, um, you know, need the circle. Um, and then it's also a good tool. I mean, MI gets used because it helps them then get even deeper on a personal level. So then, so they go, all these things go so well together. And I posted the, the questions we tend to a, uh, ask. Um, there's an association that's involved with that. So I put that link. And a, a group that I'm part of called Play for Peace that's around the world that does this same kind of work. Um, and if, if if I could ask Ange to post that, I can see it's in the chat. If you could post that to the wider group. But oh, wow. yeah, I forgot to. That's all right, Rich. Well, wow, what a what an account of uh, um, it! It uh, 
we don't have time to really explore this, but I reckon we should perhaps have a webinar soon on the on this the use of adventure games and that sequence that you describe. And I can see Andy nodding his head here um, because it sounds like such an, and it's got such implications in sport as well, such a natural and playful way of helping children to learn. Yeah, laughter is really important. Yeah. Yeah, Andy. Uh, Richard, it's good to see you again. Yeah, good um, to see you. <laughs> one thing um, that uh, I was interested in is that, um, you know, particularly with boys, in my experience, their ability to express how they were feeling, even during a game, and have a range of affective words to use um, that actually do describe how they're feeling. Um, how do you get around that? Well, sometimes what we find that when when people are saying, when we just ask questions, what what do you think? They're really going to talk first. Often it's their feelings. So we yeah. we just use the what do you think, and it's really they're talking feelings. Uh, when you then tell them how do you feel, then they get a little uncomfortable. Mm. But just asking, what do you think? You know, what was that like? Oh, that was mm. scary. Or you know, I didn't think I could trust that other person. And that's totally feelings, right? Um, so sometimes we just we just um, ask what you think, and then you reflect back, like we do in MI, um, because we use the same tools of reflection back. What what um, and you sort of couch that feeling stuff. So sometimes they don't want to answer feeling things, and I know guys, we we can also be harder to pull that out, right? Yeah, and I guess I mean I guess they get to a point where the pupils devise the next learning experience. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's the idea with play for peace is actually the older students then create the the activities for younger students. Yeah. But that's the whole idea of of that constructivist, progressive oriented, um, Frarian um, kind of yeah. um, popular education approach to learning. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you for presenting the work you're doing there. Andy, um, could you tell us about that school you sent me the video link to? Uh, we've just got another five, ten minutes, but I think you could tell us a story about that school because I believe you met someone who was involved with it. it uh, yes. Well, recently in London, they had the Times Education Summit. And I met a lady at this summit, and it was basically about the future for education. So they had the world of business there, um, and it was very business orientated. But there was a lady there who is a researcher for the BBC, and she'd put together a film about a school in Doncaster, in, in northern England, and it's called the XP School. And um, I can send uh, the YouTube link. And this school, their, their strap line says it all. And their mission statement is, above all, compassion. And that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's 250 people in the school, your pupils in the school. And um, it is focused upon 
the building of relationships and um, uh, a, a team leader staying with the pupils. You have 12 in a team, um, whereas in most schools with a tutor group, you have about 28. In this school, they have 12 in a tutor group, and that tutor stays with you right the way through your school. And the pupils lead the learning, and they lead parents' evenings. And um, instead of the focus being on GCSE outcomes, the pupils present themselves as a profile of um, their abilities, their aptitudes, their characteristics, their potential. And the GCSEs just come in the slipstream of these high-quality relationships. Um, now, it's, it's a school that's 12 times oversubscribed. So there's a huge waiting list for people to try and get into this school. And size matters to the, to the leader of this school. It's 250, that's it. And what he says in the film is, but don't let that put you off if you're in a school. The one I was in was 1,800 students. So he said that you can take some of the principles and make them work in even larger settings. Um, it's an extraordinary video. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. It'll make you stamp up and down. It'll frustrate the hell out of you. Um, but, you know, you, and you'll want to be there and you'll want to teach there. and You want to, you know, join up. Well, I can certainly send the link um, to you, Angela. Is that is that the best way forward? And then and then people can have that link. Thank um, you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andy. And uh, knowing we've only got five minutes, I wonder if we could ask people uh, in the audience, so to speak, to put any questions to anybody in the chat column. Please go ahead and do that. Any questions? And I want to apologize to Maxim in, in, in Basel and to Paul Delaney in Ireland. We're hoping to bring you on, but we've just run out of time. Anybody got any questions you'd like to ask? Andy, could you put the link in the chat? Thanks, Maxim. Uh, I have to, I have to. Yeah, I have to get onto my um, website email, and then so what I'll do is I'll go through Angela. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I just wanted to kind of reflect on is I've, I've, I've it's been a sheer pleasure listening to everybody, and lots of ideas going on in my head about you know what Rich was talking about and translating that to working with adults, because um, I think there's a, there's some benefit there and. and Rich, hopefully I can catch up with you at some point. I can hear your thoughts. But one of the overlaps that, that, that happened to me with that listening to everybody and with motivational interviewing is that quite often motivational interviewing is kind of interpreted as a soft approach. And, you know, you're, you're letting people kind of, if you're supporting their autonomy, you're letting them off the hook of personal responsibility, that what they choose to do is up to them. Um, and I kind of heard Andy, you talking a little bit about that too, that this can get packaged as being a little bit woolly. Um, but the reality of it is when you do MI and you do a restorative approach, and I'm sure it's true with what Rich is talking about, even it has a, a nice name like play for peace, is there's a fundamental element of somebody confronting things within themselves that feel really uncomfortable. And instead of trying to force it out of them, 
what we're trying to do is work with them in a way in which they're making sense out of it and they're finding the words for it and they're finding their own voice to talk about what's happening inside of them and how and how how this how this is how what they're struggling with and take some ownership of that that's fabulous observation yeah i look some some questions have come up joe um Jon uh, Trifonos asks about a neophyte sports psychologist entering football academies. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jon, I think drop me a line. You'll find my email address. Drop me a line, okay? Um, because I have got quite a bit of experience of, of UK football academies. Um, then Sami asks a very interesting question. Let me just have a look at it. What about all the misinformation we get about immunization for COVID preventing us to pass the right message? Can I answer this one? Do you mind, Joel? No, go ahead. I don't have an answer for it. Well, Sami, if you're talking about clinical practice, okay, in talking to people about immunization, I would encourage you to have a look at a module, a free module on, on motivational interviewing and vaccine hesitancy, which you can get on the PsychWire website. If you're talking about handling misinformation about COVID on a, on a broadest uh, uh, social, in that kind of environment, I don't want to speak to such a huge subject in, in 30 seconds. Perhaps all I'll say is it is a very little value to correct wrong thinking in other people. It's not an easy route to take, and it's not a wise route to take. And there we see a relationship between what works with an individual in the use of MI and what works in a broader social and political context. To tell people they're wrong the way they think and they should think this way is a recipe for disaster. Um, that's all I'll say there, Sammy. Listen. Uh, John Cunningham asks, can someone enable the ability to save the chat? I think Angela will look into that, and if possible, she will. Yeah, Tina, we can. We can do that. You can do that. Tina and Dave James asks, would this approach, do you think, have an impact of, I'm going to leave this one to you, Andy. Would this approach, do you think, have an impact on youngsters in school who may have substance use disorder? It often starts when they're young at school and can get them into trouble. Don't I know? Wow, I've seen a lot of this. How would you support someone in this situation? Um, well, I mean, it, it, essentially, in, in a restorative culture in school, um, we're appreciating that their behaviors are an expression of an unmet need. And the key in, in working with the pupil is to try to get to what that need is in order to change the behaviors. So it's, it's very much around relationships of trust and listening um, to understand what's happening for this young person um, so that they feel the need to engage in certain behaviors. Um, and a realization that sometimes this is a slow burn. It takes time and it's, you know, it's not a quick fix. Pardon the pun. And 
I'd also say that there's a very good evidence base for motor using motivational interviewing in this this uh, circumstances. I'm just looking at the chat column, folk. Sami wants a link to the free video, and I'm not sure what. I'm on. I'm on it, Steve. Thank you, my brother. Um, there you go. I wonder if Ken's still with us. I wonder if Ken McMaster can recommend a book on domestic violence. So, if Ken, if you're still with us, perhaps you can respond there. Um, the link to the PsychWire vaccine hesitancy thing is there for you. And Maxime asks a question that I think is really quite a challenge, which is how do we scale all these beautiful approaches? Because they are so linked, aren't they? We've seen some fantastic links. I see so many wonderful things currently in scientific work as well as in trainings, but somehow most of them don't end up in the mainstream, in the main reality tunnel of our civilization. <laughs> how can we change this? And it's a hell of a subject, Maxime, and uh, I'm not even, we've run out of time and I can't begin to really address it. Uh, I can only say that I feel very hopeful when I hear stories of schools like the ones Andy's indeed worked in and this new school he talks about. What I saw in Rich Rutschman's school um, was scalable and um, incredibly impressive in very, very difficult circumstances. And if you're a bit of a sport nut, Maxime, have a look at uh, Seattle Seahawks or Liverpool Football Club. It's scaled up there. And it requires leadership and leaders who are prepared to really co-create with folk and then clarify values and walk the talk. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that, I, that, that really stood out to me, Eddie, and everyone when you were talking, was that um, is that when you are trying to implement motivational interviewing, restorative practice, whatever it is, into a wider system, there are so many moving parts. And, and you, it's not the, the motivational interviewing that's going to change culture. It's the people that change the culture. And, and you have to get it. You have to realize it's going to take time and it's going to be a struggle but you have to get people buying into it on a values-based level. They and have as, to believe. They have to believe it. That's right. And as Orla said, people have to have the experience. They have to experience it, not just on a cognitive level, but in their hearts as well. Now, look, folks, it's, it's, it's five past the hour. And Andy, um, can I thank you particularly for giving us your time like this this evening? It's been fabulous. And, uh, We've got a recording now and everyone will receive a copy of it. And please do share it as well as have a look at uh, the wonderful link to the Restore Our Schools project that Andy's been involved in. Um, and to Rich, thank you and to all the others who've contributed. And just for everybody for showing up and joining the conversation with us. It's, it's, uh, I, this has been wonderful, Steve. Um, and you've done a great job piloting the ship through all of these different um, twists and turns in conversation. Um, so it's been it's been good. I've learned a lot, and I'm really appreciative 
of uh, the comments in the chat and what everybody's brought to the conversation. And we we usually um, hang out a bit longer. Yeah. Um, but so people can join us or whatever. But there's some lovely comments in the chat column from people. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, yeah. but meanwhile, please feel free to leave us. Uh, particularly you, Andy, because um, we'd love you to stay, but um, thank you, Andy. Oh, welcome. Thank you. I've put the link to the school in the chat. Brilliant. Um, so I managed, to, I managed to work that out. Um, yeah, good. Oh, lovely. Thanks very much. Bye, hey. See you next time, Andy. Wow, that was fun. Yeah, there's, I'm just looking at the chat column. I think, bye-bye, Ken. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Ken, Ken will be worried that I'm going to, uh, I'm doing this work with the New Zealand Defence Force with Ken. I have to be up in Auckland today, and he's going to hope Joel gets on the flight. <laughs> oh, really? So you're working together, the two of you? Yeah, we work together from time to time. So you, So do feel free to head off. I will. I will. I've, I've, I've got my eye on the cat on the clock. Okay, good. Because Nadia says, "Are we taking other questions?" Go ahead, Nadia. Absolutely. We got we got Richard here, so feel free to ask Rich some questions. Thanks, eh, Maxim. Take care, hey. You too, eh, Paul. I'm sorry we never got a chance to bring you on, man. I had there was a, a there was a question earlier on where somebody had asked about doping in sport, and that you know that it's not something that people own unless they get caught. But then there's also a lot of the people get caught go on and do it a second time, and I think the person was wondering where does all this fit together. Well, my thinking was motivational interviewing you know, is an ideal way of starting that conversation with somebody. It's not uncommon with for people who are trying to get away with something to not come forward that they're doing it, particularly particularly if there's a, a it's going to put their career in jeopardy or there's going to be a exactly. consequence. Well, uh, you, you, you do need boundaries, I imagine. Yes. And clarity about consequences. I think Andy and Rich would probably say that. But to simply rely on punishment um, as opposed to some kind of restoring conversation would seem a great pity. I don't know, Rich. It just creates resentment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and dropouts. So my focus was how do you prevent dropouts? So we know that. Yeah. My focus is how do we prevent these guys going back to prison? Exactly. <laughs> you know? That's the easy solution is discharge them back to prison. So, so all right. So now you had a question, right? So how do you address it? How do you address it when you're dealing with an adult child with addictive behavior where both parents aren't on the same page? Uh, someone using this model and one is not. Can it still, can it still have positive effects? That's an incredible question. I did wonder that when Dave Rosengren was talking, because I thought about my own various families that I've been involved in. And parents are often different. 
you know. And it's so important for parents to be their authentic selves because otherwise kids, you know, kids will see straight through it. But I don't know. I think it does call for, ideally, for parents to talk through these things so that they co-create with their children what the ground rules are and how things are going to be. And where parents disagree or differ on that, I think it, it leads to dysfunction. Yes. Okay, Kyle Kyle Wilkinson. I hope I'm not too late to ask you. I'm still in the process of getting my master's degree in counseling. I was wondering what extra educational resort you'd recommend for someone in my position more effective than mine. Have a look at the website, motivationalinterviewing.org, I think it is. Steve, you were reading my mind. What's this? Have a look at that. And someone was asking about a reference for uh, a link on MI with domestic violence. Really, the literature is so huge that I can only say you plug those phrases into Google and you'll get as far as I will, and you'll find stuff. But um, that's the best I can do. There's, there's no book that's been written on the subject of MI with domestic violence, but there are books on MI in social work practice. There's two or three on that subject. MI criminal justice, Mike Clark's Okay, well, I'm I'm concerned that Angela's also been here for nearly what two hours now, Ange. Um, and I think it's time to wind up. All right, we'll sign off then. Rich, it's great to see you. you. Um, yes. I hope to see you in your uh, in your town of Chicago later. This yeah, week. be great to see people. Yeah, as the host committee is, we're working to try to create a good experience. <laughs> That's what I hear. Cool. Okay, everybody, and we've still got 30, 40 people online, but I'm going to now um, Pull the plug. take my pajamas to bed. <laughs> All right, Steve. All right, thanks, everybody. Thanks so much, Joel. And oh, thank babe. you so much for, 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 for keeping, keeping things going, moving forward. Okay. Always a pleasure to see you and work with you. Steve, my brother, I will talk to you down the road. Sure, thanks, Anne. Bye, Ange, and thank, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Joel. Bye. Bye. Raymond Poobah, a yee-haw bookum.